This is the Nairobi Ideas Podcast, a podcast that gives a public platform to the Africans changing the world with their big ideas. I am your host, Ruth Kimani of the Mawazo Institute. In this season, our focus will be on climate change. We will have discussions on challenges and effects of climate change on the African continent. In this episode, we look at the Global Climate Summit, which wrapped up in Glasgow in November, known as the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26, with COP standing for Conference of the Parties. In diplomatic parlance, the parties refers to the 197 nations of these other 54 African countries that agreed to a new environmental pact the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, at a meeting in 1992. This is the 26th time the countries have gathered under the convention, hence COP26. COP26 is the fifth COP since COP21 in Paris in 2015, when the Paris Agreement Climate Treaty was agreed. The Paris Agreement saw countries sign treaties promising to strive towards keeping global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. This figure is considered key as a major study released in 2018 by the world's top climate scientists revealed that warming beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius would be much more devastating than previously thought. Limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius is expected to substantially reduce the probability of extreme drought, rainfall shortage, and risks associated with water availability, especially in the agricultural sector. Agriculture is the backbone of Africa's economy and accounts for the majority of livelihoods across the continent. Increases in temperature and changes in rainfall patterns also significantly affect population health across Africa. Warmer temperatures and higher rainfall increase habitat suitability for biting insects and the transmission of vector-borne diseases. According to the International Monetary Fund, adverse consequences of climate change are concentrated in regions with relatively hot climates, where a disproportionately large number of low-income countries are located. The COP26 text builds on greenhouse gas reduction targets established in Paris five years ago. Countries are asked to revisit and strengthen goals for cutting carbon emissions by the end of 2022. Negotiators called for clean energy power to be rapidly scaled up and the face down of coal power and inefficient fossil fuel subsidies to be accelerated. COP26 is important as the Paris Agreement stated that every five years countries must revisit their promises and if possible increase their ambitions. So far the world has failed to keep global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius in the past five years. What does this mean for Africa? Did you know that all 54 nations in Africa contribute 
only about 3% of global emissions, a fact that surprises many people when they find out. To understand what is next for Africa after COP26, I invited a sustainability and net zero strategy expert, Edna Kimenju. Welcome to the show, Edna. Please introduce yourself. That was an excellent intro to what COP26 was all about. My name is Edna Kimenju and I'm a sustainability practitioner. So I build bridges between businesses, people and the environment by providing support on sustainability issues and best practices to businesses that wish to in integrate economic and social considerations in their day-to-day -day operations. Currently, I'm a sustainability consultant at KCIC Consulting, where we support businesses with strategy development. This is the net zero strategies, ESG strategies, green strategies, and the likes, as well as provide implementation support for those strategies, because we want the businesses to focus on their core business then outsource the sustainability function to us. So at the end of the day, the bottom line is still met. Our additional services we provide is reporting and measurement, and this is the sustainability reporting, ESG reporting, according to GRI standards, as well as advisory services on sustainability finance and climate change. So that's a brief of what I am currently working on. Okay, that's interesting. Maybe for our guest, maybe what is KICIC or KCIC? Yes, KCIC. So okay. KCIC Consulting is part of a group called KCIC Group. And what KCIC stands for is uh, Kenya Climate Innovation Center. And what the whole group works on is around innovations that work on climate change issues. So our sister company, which is KCIC, actually incubates entrepreneurs who are in the climate change space, provides funding, gives them access to facility, access to information, business advisory, uh, and creates an enabling environment that supports their businesses. Yeah, so that's what KCIC does. Then the consulting side is the one that provides professional climate change and sustainability advice uh, to the private sector and other organizations. To quote the COP26 working slogan, making sure where Paris promised, Glasgow delivered. As you look at African countries, what have been some of the challenges in meeting commitments made in Paris five years ago to keep global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius? Before I go to the challenges, I have to reinstate the statistic you gave earlier that African nations are not a significant source of GHG emissions. Statistically, we only account for about 2 to 3% of the global emissions. However, I keep saying that our minimal contribution doesn't absolve us from our responsibility to still mitigate our impact as we develop. So we still have that responsibility. That said, I have to commend the African countries for the proactiveness and willingness to leapfrog 
to a greener 1.5 economy. And this was really evident in some of the NDC commitments we made at COP26, as well as the position taken by African negotiations at COP26. It was an excellent position and it's something that has to be recognized. Uh, so moving on to the challenges, um, we, as African nations, we set ambitious NDC uh, targets, but achieving these commitments ain't cheap. And that has been the challenge for African nations because they need international support in bearing the mitigation costs because their countries are not as developed as other nations. So finances is a real challenge in the implementation and also in trying to keep 1.5 degrees alive. Uh, that was recognized in 2009 during COP5, uh, COP15, where developed nations promised to work towards raising $100 billion each year by 2020 to help countries who are most vulnerable to the impacts uh, of climate change tackle climate change. However, we are in 2021 and the rich nations have failed to meet that pledge. In 2019, the figure was at $79.6 million raised. But you see, this is still short of the 100. The COP negotiation this year, Alok Sharma, the president, uh, stated that they expect to meet the 100 billion commitment by 2023, and even went further to promise additional $500 billion uh, between 2021 and 2025. The actualization of this is still yet to be seen because we they already missed the previous uh, target. So we have to figure out a way how this new target is going to it really worked to urge developed nations to double their contributions. And we hope they'll be able to transfer or put action into this commitment. So we are waiting to see. The other challenge has always been translating the commitments into action. And this uh, pull from the statement, the working slogan you said that where Paris promised Glasgow delivered. So though Glasgow has not delivered what Paris promised uh, to guarantee 1.5, it has kept the prospect of achieving it alive through things like the pact, which was the outcome, or the Paris Agreement rulebook, which has Article 6, which is huge for carbon markets. Uh, and then there's also quite a bit of signals of change committing to end and end and halt halt and reverse deforestation that was that was the commitment or uh, drastically reduce methane emissions or uh, mobilize private finance around net zero and transition to cleaner technologies among others however this 1.5 degrees according to Alok, he keeps saying the pulse is weak and it will only survive if we keep the promises made by translating these commitments into rapid action. And this is where African nations need to show their work. Most of the funding available for climate change 
you mentioned climate finance, mm-hmm. has been spent on richer countries working to achieve green energy and net zero emissions. Yet, according to statistics, Africa loses 7 to $15 billion yearly due to climate change. How can we ensure there is greater inclusivity in how we allocate funds in the fight against climate change? I have to say this this was a really hot subject at COP26. Yeah. Developing nations were pushing for 50-50 balance between adaptation and mitigation. Or specifically down to the continent, African negotiators were um, calling for $1.3 trillion, to, which is the estimate that the continent could face in climate change-related costs. There's also a push for establishing an international loss and damage fund. All these efforts were not fruitful, unfortunately. So the climate financing ratio still remains at 40 to adaptation and 60 to mitigation, whereas the pact only managed to operationalize the Santiago Network, which is a body that aims to build a technical expertise on dealing with loss and damage. However, we have to still recognize the pluses. Case in point, loss and damage was acknowledged and referenced in the text. So back to your question, how do we ensure inclusivity? One avenue would be involving businesses to ensure because there is a wide spectrum of businesses that operate globally. So we have some, for example, in Kenya that are multinational and operate in all, all, all the continents. So those businesses, when they're putting in action, maybe in the Western world, we can still leverage that action to trickle down to, African con- uh, to the African continent as well. Another avenue would be the holy grail as it is right now, Article 6, so carbon markets. But we still need to figure out where do we position ourselves as a continent to be able to be recipients and have a vocal voice when it comes to trading in carbon because we are the ones who are most vulnerable to climate change, yet we contributed the least. Um, Another way we can ensure inclusivity is having a single voice as a continent and leveraging on what that what that voice entails and what that voice is communicating so that whatever we put out we are putting a statement as one and ensuring that we lobby for things that benefit us as a continent so those are just a few of the things we can try to do but uh, there's still so much work that has to go into it yeah we have incredible energy inequality across the globe mm-hmm. as part of cop 26 there was conversation on consigning coal power to history mm-hmm. how does coal being phased out affect fossil fuel rich african countries and how can the transition to green energy benefit energy sectors on the african continent which needs vast amounts of energy for development. Well, Ruth, I have to tell you, this was another subject that left a lot of delegations and people disappointed. 
um, especially when India and China watered down the wording from facing out coal to facing down coal. Um, I still like focusing on the the glimmers of hope, and uh, one thing that happened is for the first time, uh, coal was included in the texts. So in the COP text, the first time coal was referenced as a fossil fuel energy. So as much as the wording was watered down to facing down, at least it was recognized as being an emitter. Uh, there was also additional signals of change that happened um, outside the official uh, negotiation. And one was the global call to clean power transition statement which aims to end international public support for fossil fuel energy by 2022. So what that means is financing international finance to coal projects and things like that. There's a push to end those. But what does facing down coal or for the climate uh, environmentalists who are hoping for facing out coal, what does that mean? for fossil fuel rich countries. And the effect is quite significant because we are looking at the contribution fossil fuel has had in GDP. Um, it has fueled the economy, so cars, business by fact of distribution of raw materials and even production, and actually distribution to the end user, as well as the jobs that are in that space. And that's why the conversations have really focused on something we call the just transition. So there's been a call for just transition. And one such example, which was huge at COP26, was the South Africa Accelerated Just Energy Transition, which is a partnership that will initially avail $8.5 billion over the next three to five years. Uh, and it's supported by UK, US, France, Germany, and the EU. And so they'll be working to facilitate and enable a just transition for South Africa from fossil fuel to cleaner energy. There are also additional initiatives that were supporting the face down of coal. And one such example was the Shipping Just Transition Task Force. And for this one, it particularly looks at the job part because they recognize that um, once we begin to face down coal, a lot of people will lose jobs. And so the International Chamber of Shipping and the International Transport Workers Federation together with UN Global Compact will work together to empower workers' skill transition to a zero emission shipping industry. Another similar initiative was the Just Skills Hub, which uh, is UK-based, and it will leverage data analytics to empower workers in the green transition, develop specific skills needed for the zero carbon economy. Yeah, so those are some of the things that came up, but the mother of all of it was the Glasgow Breakthrough Agenda, which was signed by... 40 plus world leaders and it aims for countries and businesses to work together to scale up and speed up development and deployment of clean technologies 
and particularly drive down the costs because that's important. And all this they aim to do by 2030. So that was like the umbrella for the energy discussions at COP. One of the effects of climate change has been shortage of rainfall, which has had detrimental effects on the agricultural sector. Looking ahead, in the face of climate change, how can Africa ensure its food security? One of the things that will hit us as a continent. And I remember in in uni, uh, we did like a COP simulation and I happened to represent Ethiopia in that. And as much as I was even studying sustainability, I didn't fully understand the extent of it until I realized Ethiopia and Kenya, we have very similar climatic conditions and we pride ourselves in our tea and coffee and all these things. But when the temperature continues to change, the question is, where does, where do, where does our position in, in tea and coffee stand in the next couple of years? And this is, this is just a few examples of how we need to con- contextualize or what will happen as the weather changes. So in order for Africa to ensure its food security, we'll need to overhaul the whole agricultural value chain. So this means looking at research development and innovation around climate smart agriculture. And the good thing is there's a lot of work that is spearheaded around that direction and it's commendable. But we also need to think through the food innovation systems. So as I said, this is drought-resistant crops, investing in technologies that uh, maximize water efficiency. So not just the drip irrigation we do. The question is, is the drip irrigation system efficient? So maximizing the water that is being used. I will also need to think about innovations around food waste so that we minimize the amount of wastes from the garden to the production houses, to the distribution and to the consumer. And also this calls for even innovation, value addition innovations in between those value chains. Within this area, there's there's some signals of changes at COP as well. And one of them was the Global Action Agenda for Innovation in Agriculture aka climate shot because that name is quite long <laughs> yes <laughs> and <laughs> what climate sh- shot aims to do is mobilize uh, about five billion dollars to close the innovation gap in agriculture and food systems so they are working with about 160 plus allies together with uh, parties like 100 million farmers multi-stakeholder platform which is led by world economic forum uh, as well as global research alliance on agricultural greenhouses gases so this is just some of the parties they are working t- uh, with there's also another initiative uh, called agriculture innovation mission for climate because long names are not our forte. This one is called M4C. (laughs) And it has garnered uh, about $4 billion initial investment to accelerate innovation in sustainable agriculture. And the U.S. has committed $1 billion over the next five years. And the Gates Foundation is primarily going to give about $350 million uh, 
to CGIAR, yeah? And what the, they do is provide uh, seeds to smallholder farmers all over the world. Um, particularly in Africa, there's a global evergreening alliance, which announced, I think, about $150 million uh, investment in agricultural regeneration in Africa. So those were some of the things that were happening in the agricultural space. But that said, it has to trickle down to each nation, and each nation will have to really rethink what food looks like. So are we going to look at the livestock industry and the contribution to climate change? Are we going to look at um, the waste that happens in between the production systems? So all these things, we'll need to sit down and redesign them. And this is the part where I call together our design thinking experts to help us do this, so that we can come up with innovations that actually work. Yeah. So referencing the climate short mm -hmm. and all these conversations and discussions around COP and what is next for Africa, mm -hmm. we, while we may not be reliant on the funds, mm -hmm. we also need the commitment of the richer countries, the $100 billion, to push ourselves forward in innovation. Mm -hmm. How can we ensure the $100 billion proposed for Africa is delivered? And how do we allocate this to ensure sustainability? One way to do it is through government to government, so bilateral negotiations. So that gives us a position to be able to, quote, quote attract huger sums of money. So that can be one avenue to get it. But also we can do it at private sector level and by this is our companies that are operating with that, within that space can be able to come together form an alliance and work towards a certain target and or with that goal they can be able to seek for financing for that particular goal and I think one case point is um, that has that is working in the forestry kind of forestry space is something we call the Leaf Coalition, and what the Leaf Coalition does, um, it was twenty big multinational companies, the Unilevers and what's hot knots, are committing to say that beyond our net zero commitments, we'll be able to trade this money to help our deforestation efforts in various parts of the country. So this is an initiative that is driven by private companies and that's an example of some of the things private companies in African context can be able to do. Trickling down to the value chain, we can still do uh, where small entrepreneurs through certain hubs, for example, what KCIC does, uh, is bring together pools of entrepreneurs who are innovating. The good thing about SMEs is they are innovative. There is no bureaucracy, so some of the things no really go. Oh, yeah, oh, there. they can be able to come up with things faster compared yeah. to bigger companies. Yeah. So they are faster to respond to climate change issues. But financing is always an issue. So if they're able to come together and um, maybe an incubation fund or an accelerator and be able to 
pull together what they can be able to do to seek for financing. That can be also be another initiative they can be able to do. So the likes of KCIC can be another vehicle. Yeah, so those are some of the things we can try and do to accelerate. But sustainability has to trickle down to every individual in this nation and in this continent. And that what that means is you as an individual, don't even look at yourself as an entrepreneur, but you as an individual, when you go to shop, are you conscious of your decisions? And this one, even us sustainability people actually have to to struggle with. So you, it's not just any commoner struggling with it. We have to put in the effort collectively because you have to go and look at the products you're buying. What impact do they have on the environment? And if each of us commit to transforming our living into a sustainability living, then we have the demand which pushes the companies to give us products that are sustainable. We always end the podcast by asking all our guests about what their big idea is. Mm-hmm. Looking ahead, what is your big idea for how your work on sustainability and net zero strategies can help create the world you envision? My big idea is just, uh, um, it relates to what I've just previously said, and is I want every person or every individual walking into a store or a corner store or kiosk as we call them to Ken- uh, in Kenya to be able to get a product that is classified as a sustainability product or a sustainable product. And by sustainable product, we're not looking at it as in so broadly. We're just saying that it was produced in a way that respected the raw materials um, its product life um, also uh, is extended to its best, the best there is when it comes to the life cycle assessment. When it comes to the end of life, it is in such a way that either it can be recycled or it's a circular economy kind of concept. So I do want a point where things like concept like refillables, can we see some of these things in 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 the country and it's not too out of reach because if you look at what our parents and our their parents were doing when it comes to buying soft drinks you'd go with you they'd give you the bottle the glass one it still happens now and then once you're done using it you give it back and there's a small deposit used to pay for the bottle so something like that when they used to get milk so we'd give like a container to the milkman and then they give you milk and then you use your milk and give the container back. So the container is used, so you, that happens. So these things, we're not fetching them from the air. <laughs> these are some things we've been doing. We just need to now transition back to them. And that's once I see that happening in, in, in a scalable concept, then I can almost say I am ready to retire in the field (laughs) (laughs) or at least focus my efforts to other sustainability elements so 
I'm calling any people who are interested in, this, uh, in the same vision to be able to reach out and see how we can work together. And that's the beauty also about our consulting is that we can be able to support businesses who do want to transition into things like that. And we can be able to work with them to see how they transition their businesses into greener spaces. And be and make money out of it. This is not voluntary. This is we are looking at your bottom line as well. So, yeah. uh, we'll ensure that you have new products and services that give you money as while still protecting people and planet. So yeah, that's the world I'm looking looking forward to. The triple bottom line. The triple bottom line. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. So at this point, thank you for coming oh, on the podcast. To find out more about our guests, find links to information shared in this episode, or to listen again, you can find us permanently on the Nairobi Ideas podcast page at mawazoinstitute.org backslash podcast. You can also subscribe to the Nairobi Ideas podcast on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nairobi Ideas Podcast is brought to you by the Mawazo Institute, a Nairobi-based research organization focused on female thought leadership and public engagement with research. New episodes drop once a week on Thursdays. Till then, from all of us here at Mawazo Institute, bye and keep it nerdy.